So tonight we are in Nehemiah chapter 2, verses 9 through 20, and a lot of notes there. We won't be able to use all of that in this study, but it's there for your own personal study. I, I have a couple of people share with me. They go home and they read the notes, and they just, it's like uh, they get twice as much out of it uh, as they read through all the detail and notes I don't necessarily bring out in the sermon, but uh, they're there for your knowledge and your learning. Just one thing you guys may not know is that I do a lot of coaching or mentoring or discipling other pastors uh, around the nation, even outside the nation, spend many hours a week doing that. And one of the things I'm helping them do, as always, is learn leadership. And I do take them through the book of Nehemiah. So I've got these guys out there, uh, some I'm in, some I'm not, that are taking very careful observation of how I teach Nehemiah. So um, you will notice that we are milking out the leadership principles from God to us. And all of us are leaders in some aspect of our lives. I think actually in many aspects of our lives. And I think that once we learn the principles of leadership, you'll find some areas in your life very much strengthened. So I really want you to take this to heart. I really want you to take this personally and to say, just as God led Nehemiah from being a cupbearer to the king to being a great leader, an example of leadership, so Lord, do that work in my heart as well. In just a simple sentence, this book is about God using a man to get together with a group of people, in this case, the people of Israel, and to build a wall. So just by review, Nehemiah was a cupbearer of the great king, Artaxerxes, uh, Longimanus, and uh, his brother came and gave him bad news at Jerusalem. They had a temple, but the walls were down and people were in horrible straits because of it. It pierced his heart. He began to pray and fast, ended up being four months. And after that time period, the king said, hey, you're looking sad, which is a descent. You can't look sad in front of the king. But Nehemiah prayed real quick, an instant in prayer, and, and, and he poured out his heart to the king. And the king's heart was willing to do whatever Nehemiah wanted. And Nehemiah was ready with the details and said, I need letters, I need wood, I need this amount of time off, I need, and everything, the king said, yes. And so we, we learned thus far in chapter one on leadership. A leader has a clear recognition of the needs. A leader, number two, is personally concerned about those needs. Number three, a serious leader goes first to God with the problem. And I would just say to you in the secular arena, it's the same. You may not be able to get together with your people at work, or if you're a coach at a high school or something, you may not be able to get together with your other coaches and have a prayer meeting. But nevertheless, you can commit your heart to prayer and say, God, give me wisdom. I, I think of Daniel in Babylon and there, him and his buddies, they went to God and didn't eat of the sacrificed pagan meat. And the Lord blessed those guys. 
And, uh, and, and many of the leadership principles you see in Nehemiah, you see in Daniel, you see in Ezra, you see in King David. It's, and then, of course, Jesus and, and his leadership style. A leader is available to meet the need himself. That's the key thing. Nehemiah didn't say, Lord, send somebody there. I'm praying for them. I'll give them some money. Uh, they got my moral support. He's like, Lord, here I am. Use me. We learn four principles in chapter two as well. In particular, the principles of preparation. Number one, we learn that God changes the hearts of people. God is in the heart-changing business. Amen to that? And, and honestly, most of the things God gives us to do, typically you would say that can't be done because the city council won't allow it, the government won't allow it, the building commission won't allow it. I, I, can't, I can tell you that most things God gave me to do Categorically, they were completely against it. And, and just one by one, God just turned over, turned over, turned over those things. I could tell you some amazing stories, very similar to this right here, how God did miracles, touching the hearts of people that are dead set against our building project and then eventually came around to say, hey, how can we help you? Number two, we learn in chapter two, that praying and waiting go hand in hand hand. You're not just getting stuck going, come on, God, what's the answer? No, he's giving you time to deepen your walk in prayer. Faith is not a synonym for disorder or substitute for careful planning. Faith and planning go hand in hand. I love that old saying that, that says, without God, we can't, but without us, he won't. I don't know if you like that or not. Here's another one, a revolutionary one. Uh, seek the Lord, cry out to God, but keep your powder dry. Um, referring to the gunpowder. So either way, it's saying that having God's divine help does not remove the human element of our ability to have to plan and prepare. They both work hand in hand. And number four, opposition is always to be expected when you're carrying out God's plan. So now as we study Nehemiah, we want to keep learning the principles of leadership and how they apply to our lives individually. We want to learn the skills or the principles of leadership that it might be used to build the various walls in our lives and over the spheres of influence we lead. Get excited and be encouraged that our God is the same God today, yesterday, and forever. And he has a wall for us as a church to build, to build and to, and to rise and to build it. So again, it's not like some hypothetical thing that has no application to us. Where we're at in God's word is where God is at in our lives. So there's going to be some walls that God has, Calvary Chapel, Los Alamitos, to build. And, and very specifically, he has us as leaders that are here to be Nehemiahs and, and everybody to join in the work and to see the amazing work that God's going to do. I would say all churches right now are saying the same thing, and it's evangelism and discipleship. And that's the wall we're building. That's the walls in which the church 
don't have walls. They've been broken down. Or maybe those walls were never built to begin with. It was more of a Sunday morning show, (laughs) you know? They had the music, they had the lights, they had the, you know, the organization. It was just a smooth church service and everybody files in and files out. And, and uh, it's worked for decades, but it's not what the Lord said on how he wanted to build his church. And now we're having to maybe build walls for the first time of the area of evangelism and discipleship. And everybody's got to put their shoulder to the work. I wish I had time last week and I didn't looking at the 70 days or the 70 weeks of Daniel and nor do I have time this week, but I did have it in the notes last week and it was sort of a, not a real thorough job there, but you want to study out the 70 weeks of Daniel because the prophecy there in Daniel 9 says the beginning date of the prophecy speaking in the future will be when the king declares to rebuild Jerusalem. And I give the reasons why I believe this date right here in Nehemiah chapter two is the official date. And he said, there'll be a total of 490 years God deals with Israel as a nation. But after 483 years, the Messiah will be cut off, but not for himself. So if you go from the date in March 14th, 19 or 445 BC and their calendar was a 360 day a year calendar and you put that out into days it comes out to 173,880 days what a beautiful mind I have and uh, you, you put that to the March 14th 445 BC it brings us to April 6th 32 AD where Jesus is riding in on the donkey and the people are saying hosanna hosanna blesses he who comes in the name of the lord and then the lord says i wish you had known this your day but the pharisees were telling him to tell everybody to stop blaspheming jesus said this is the day the lord's made and if i were to try to stop these guys from saying save us now save us now the 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 118 psalm that was directed to the messiah If I tried to stop them, the rocks would cry out. This is the day the Lord's had made. We'll rejoice and be glad in it. And so then the Messiah shortly thereafter would be cut off, not for himself. And now it's just sort of hit the pause button. There's going to be another seven years yet. God's going to deal with Israel as a nation. And we know from the book of Revelation, that's called the tribulation period. So right now there's been a pause button on the nation of Israel I believe that the prophecies are happening where Israel will become a nation again. Wouldn't that be incredible after 2,000 years, Israel could become a nation again? Is that even possible? Oh, hold it. It did happen. And not very long ago, May 18, 1948, Israel became a nation. He who blesses Abraham will be blessed. He who curses Abraham will be cursed. Guess who was the very first nation that recognized them as a nation. United States of America. And if you look 1948 and you look at England, they start tanking. They were against it. You look at America after 1948, we have never stopped succeeding until recently. Anyway, I won't go there. So I'm not going to go into that. Like I said, we don't have time. 
But um, <laughs> study out the 70 weeks of Daniel. So he gave the decree to go, and we come into verse 9 now of chapter 2. Then I went to the governors in the region beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent captains of armies and horsemen with me. He didn't send the, the little guys. He sent some powerful dudes, guys that were major leaders in his army. And they went into the region, but once they crossed the river, heading now to Jerusalem and Judea, no turning back. They did it. They went. I, I love that. Then I went. Interesting. 800 difficult miles from Susha all the way to Jerusalem. You see, here, here's the... Here's, a principle we need to see in Nehemiah. He did it. He prayed. He gathered wisdom. He got a vision. He had a plan. He stepped out in faith. But then he did it. Do we get that? He did it. So often people will talk about, for example, yeah, we need to evangelize. We should go out there door to door. We should go out into the highways and the byways. We should just, you know, and, well, let's, let's consider that at our prayer meeting. Let's do a, a evangelism training. And we have evangelism training. Well, after we pray about some more, we're going we're gonna to do that. This week, I may, I may just witness somebody this week. You better watch out. But I, I may need another couple months of prayer before that happens, though, too. I'm not sure. It's, it's amazing how God has said so clearly to do it. I think Matthew 28, Jesus said, go into all the world and preach the gospel. You, you know the verse after that that said, pause, slow down, stop. You don't need to go into the world anymore. Did you guys read that verse? There isn't one. He said, go, and he's never hit the pause button since then. He never said slow down. He definitely didn't say stop. He didn't say, now that we got the Sunday morning service thing worked out, we really don't need you guys to go and evangelize and make disciples anymore. Uh, we'll leave that to the big hitters. You guys, just as long as you show up Sunday morning, you got it all covered. No. But here we see he did it. And he got the guys together and they started marching that 800 miles. They crossed the river and they talked to the various guys along the way and let them know this is something straight from the king and we're moving forward with this. And verse 10, and when Sambalat the Hornite and Tobiah the Amorite officials heard of it, they were deeply disturbed that a man had come to seek the well-being of the children of Israel. Take note of these guys. This is the first time, but it will not be the last time we hear of them. Sambalat the Hornite and Tobiah the Ammonite. They were deeply disturbed that a man had come to seek the well-being of the children of Israel. Do you realize how demonic that is? If I heard that a man came to seek the well-being of the poor in East LA, would I be bummed about that? A man is going to wherever to seek the well-being of somebody. How, how could you not rejoice in that? If you didn't rejoice in that, 
There's something wrong with you. You're bitter. You're evil. But these guys, they did not want Israel to stop being weak. They did not want Israel to stop being vulnerable. You can have your temple as long as you don't worship there. (laughs) As long as you're too disturbed to worship there, we don't mind you having a temple. But we don't want you to be strong, secure, or free from stress. An important note. Up to this point, there really was no opposition to Nehemiah. He thought there might be with the king, but there wasn't. God touched the heart of the king. So in the heart stage, in the vision stage, in the prayer stage, in the planning stage, no opposition until what? The actual doing stage. And when you now are actually going to do it, Satan steps up. Ellen Redpath says this, Leaders must prepare themselves for difficult work because it won't be easy. There's no winning without warfare. There's no opportunity without opposition. There's no victory without vigilance. For whenever the people of God say, let us rise and build, Satan says, let me arise and oppose. True? Very, very true. Well, verse 11, I came to Jerusalem and was there three days. Wow, reality. I've been to Jerusalem, and I I know this feeling. It's one thing to see pictures and to think about it. But when you are actually standing in Jerusalem, where our Lord was so much of the time, and of course where he died and buried and rose again, when you're up there at the top of Mount Olives, right next to Bethany, where Lazarus was raised from the dead, or you're sitting on the southern steps where Jesus walked by, and these are the actual steps that no doubt Jesus himself stepped upon. Or you're going down the Via Della Rosa, where Jesus came up from the Antonio Fortress and made his way to Golgotha, and you walk those steps and and when I take my group, I like them to have headsets where they listen to the song. It's in English and Spanish, the Via Della Rosa, and just to walk that path and, and, to, and to picture Jesus carrying the patible on the horizontal part of the cross. It, it's, it's, it's something else when you're there. You wake up in the morning and you're in Jerusalem. Well, it, made a, it was a long time. And for many people taking such a rigorous, difficult path, they might have waited weeks before making a step to start doing. Three days was a very short time. And during that time, we discover that he didn't say anything to anybody of why he was there. No doubt speculation. Wow, this guy from Artaxerxes is here. Anybody know about that? No. Well, a bunch of soldiers are here. Anybody know about that? Well, what about all that wood? Anybody know about that? No. Hmm, I wonder what's going on. Boy, anticipation was building in Jerusalem, don't you think? And Nehemiah was just having probably a surreal experience. He's actually there, a place he had heard about his whole life. He's actually there in the city of God where the Messiah himself will rule and reign. An important note we learn here in this very tiny little verse 
of Nehemiah 2.11. So it came, I came to Jerusalem and was there three days. Here's the important note. A good leader learns a sense of God's timing. He waited for three days because the Lord was having him wait for three days. Well, in verse 12, then I rose in the night and a few men with me, and I told no one what my God had put in the heart to do at Jerusalem, nor was there any animal with me except the one which I rode. So the men with him were quiet. Nobody had said anything. He's on a donkey. It doesn't appear that the other men are. They're trying to make their way around to see the case of the wall. A few men with him, men quiet, men with him. He doesn't need them. He just wants them with him, quiet with him to give him that support and strength, maybe protection. He told nobody. He just pondered everything in his heart. I love that Mary, the Mary who had the great honor of giving birth to the body of Jesus. After Gabriel spoke to her, it says in Luke 2.19, she kept all these things and pondered them in her heart. I love the NIV. It says it tre- that she treasured all these things up in her heart and pondered them. Well, he's going around the wall. Let's look at verse 13 through 16. I went out by night and through the valley gate to the serpent well. Now's when you might want to look at the map. And the refuse gate and viewed the walls of Jerusalem, which had broken down its gates, which are burned with fire. Then I went to the fountain gate and to the king's pool, and there was no room for the animal under me to pass. So I went up to, by night to the valley, viewed the wall. Then I turned back, entered by the valley gate. So I returned. And the officials did not know where I had gone or what I had done. And I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, officials, or others who did the work. So he told nobody anything at that point. So if you take a look at that map that I gave you, you'll see that on the bottom left hand, which is the part of Jerusalem facing Bethlehem to the south. So the left side of the page is actually facing west and the ocean is not too far away, the Mediterranean Sea. The right side would take you to the Dead Sea, to Jordan, to the east, heading towards Persia. And then you see the side where the Mount of Olives is. This is where we often go and we look at the eastern gate. And uh, we see right past the eastern gate is where the Temple Mount area was. And so the city looks very different than it was much larger during the time of Christ. And today when you go, the eastern gate is not at the far north part of the city as it was in Nehemiah's time. It's actually sort of on the southern part of Jerusalem today. Um, and, um, and so you can see he starts down at the southern west part of the corner, the valley gate. And there he winds his way counterclockwise all the way around. Some say when he he hit a certain point that he had to turn around and go back so he wasn't able to go all the way around. Some others say that there was no need to go because there there was no need for the the part of it. It was already uh, built there. But either way, 
we, we get a sense of what that's like. It's very steep. Um, it's not an easy uh, road. And I have actually had the opportunity in times past, you can't do it today, it's too dangerous, but actually to walk on top of the wall all the way around Jerusalem. And it is quite the workout, um, way up high and you're walking, you're having to run across roofs and people are coming out going, what are you doing on my roof? And you got to do it real quick. It was, it was sort of a daring even back when I did it years ago, but you can't be done anymore. The, the, those who have the Temple Mount area won't even let you get past there. But um, yeah, it's quite a trek. And there's actually places where you can see the foundational area of Nehemiah's actual wall of that time period they've kept in their archaeological studies. It's pretty, pretty amazing. It really is. Well, he says, I, I went out by night. He started there, probably not too far from where he was staying. Counterclockwise, he went around and saw firsthand the rubble. He had the heart, he had the faith, he had the vision, but he needed to see the specifics firsthand. It wasn't somebody told him or somebody explained it to him. He saw it firsthand, what, how much time it would take, the effort, the money, the leadership. The actual word viewed here, where he viewed the wall, it's actually a medical term, which means probing a wound to see the extent of its damage. So he really was looking specifically to get that first hand of the condition of the problem. You know, when we think about walls that are broken down and how bad are those walls, we can sort of spiritualize that. And we can ask that uh, about the Christians around us. Are there walls in our fellowship? that are broken down, or maybe looking at Christendom of our country and to say, are the walls broken down? They just had an article came out today that I just read, and in Germany, the Lutheran church comes out and, and proudly tells everybody that they are a proud trans-denominational church, that all transgendered people are welcome in the Lutheran church of Germany. And they were, they were so proud of themselves. They were explaining how the LGBT community is embraced by Jesus and the Bible and, and, uh, and that Christianity uh, accepts them the way they are and, and that um, everybody from priests to janitors to choir directors should, should all be able to be a part of it. When you look at those kind of things, it just sort of breaks your heart. But you realize how bad things are really broken down. The Christians around us, some are doing well, but some are not. Some are desperately hurting. They're trapped in a cycle of sin. Some are outside looking in. There's some that respect God, but they just aren't living for God as they know how they should be living. And for some, they just need help for somebody to come alongside and help them to build their portion of the wall back up. We can think of the walls of our children's lives. We love them. We care for them. But if we'll look honestly, Nehemiah looked honestly at the condition. If we looked honestly at the weaknesses of, and the character of our children 
and how maybe some of that weakness and character has fallen down or maybe was never there to begin with. If we soberly consider what will become of them if they continue in those weaknesses dominating their lives or their entire personalities. If we consider what will happen if they grow up rejecting Jesus and their future is ruined unless God uses us to train and to nurture them. As parents, you never quit being a parent. It just changes how you parent, right? Maybe the walls of your business or relationships or friendships, you need to take a sober look at those walls. Or we can look at the walls of our church. And I think this is where God is leading us to say, wow, you know, there's some really strong areas and we're satisfied, but there's other areas that are weak and crumbling or there's some areas that, that really aren't there. Maybe it has to do uh, in the financial area or outreach area or reaching our missions group or coming back to that area of evangelism and discipleship. And then, of course, we all can just say, what about the walls of our personal lives? To take a genuine tour of that wall and ask ourselves, is there some area that's been burned with fire and is tragic that it's down? In Proverbs 25, 28, it says this, whoever has no rule over his own spirit, it's like a city broken down without walls. So this uh, concept is not with me <laughs> of looking at our lives as walls or broken down walls. It comes right from Solomon and his wisdom from God's word saying, yep, take a look at it. David Guzik says this, many lives are like a city with broken walls, living with a constant sense of fear, poverty, insecurity. We should not hide our eyes from these broken down places God wants to change them and make the first steps of change right away. And again, I think this is just a real part of discipleship. If you see somebody struggling, you can just say, let's get some discipleship materials on marriage and let's, the four of us get together and just watch a video clip and go through these workbooks and just talk about our marriages and, and to see God strengthen your marriage. Because I, I'm, I'm, as I'm looking at this, correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems like the walls in your marriage are broken down. Or maybe you're seeing somebody struggle with how they're raising their kids. The same thing. Or maybe you have gotten a glimpse that somebody's not being a good steward of their finances and they're in some problems. They say, hey, let's go through a, a series uh, on on finances and, you know, the multitude of counsel, there's wisdom. And so there's all kinds of discipleship materials for all kinds of areas. It's not uncommon in the substance abuse area. And some of you guys here who are in AA, you know about that. I know about that. Where you see somebody struggling with some addiction to be able to say, hey, I'm going to a meeting this Thursday. Would you go with me? You don't have to say a word, just come along with me. And they go to that meeting and, and in time they start a 12-step program or something. That's not uncommon. And, and of course, it takes a while a lot of times so people to say, I truly am an addict. I really do have complete broken down walls. They want to pretend they don't. Oh, no, my walls are fine. Nope. And it's like, I'm looking at a bunch of black ash here and I'm looking at a bunch of stones and, 
you know, but, you know, you're convinced the wall isn't broken down. I can't do anything until you're willing to, to identify that yourself. So Nehemiah was willing to look at what was wrong. And I no doubt that was a difficult thing to do. But he had to come in his leadership to realistic, a realistic view before he could start, right? I love positive people. I'm one of them. But when positive people try to put a spin on everything, no, there's no crisis at the border. We wanted 13 million people to come in in January. Or whatever they're saying, it's, you're not, you're not being honest. I, I, I want a leadership that's honest. And what does a leader do? They go down to the wall themselves to take a look at it for themselves. I, I don't know if the White House listens to our sermons or not. <laughs> but if he would, Joe Biden, you'd realize you need to go down to the wall yourself and look yourself and not ask yourself how can I spin this so nobody really thinks there's nothing wrong? Give an honest appraisal of the condition to the people. This is what we learn in this chapter. It's not me, okay? If you're here thinking I'm being political, you're wrong. I'm talking about Nehemiah. And verse 17, then I said to them, you see the distress that we are in, how Jerusalem lies in waits. Its gates are burned with fire. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer be a reproach. First of all, he says, we. He just showed up three days earlier. And they, they realize he's not just some emissary passing through or some guy from Artaxerxes to take all these soldiers and enact more taxes from them. They had no idea what was coming up, did they? But now Nehemiah comes out I am a fellow Jew. This is not your problem. It's my problem as well. Because this is our city. This is the place that our God has put his name. This is the place that God has chosen that he would be his center of worship. Isn't that what God said to Moses and the gang? I will tell you where you will worship. I will tell you where you will put my name. And he said, Jerusalem, and he said, forever. You know, when people ask the question, whose land is it? God says repeatedly to Abraham and his descendants, forever. You know, right after God says that about a dozen times, then he says, if you disobey me, I'm taking you out. But then when you cry out to me, I'll bring you back. Do you know how many times God took them out and then brought them back? Several. But he never said, when I take you out, it's no longer your land anymore. No, he said, it's always your land. But sometimes I'll take you out of it, but it's still your land. I'm keeping it for you, for the Jews. And one day I'll bring it back in when it suits my purposes to bring you back in. But then God says, I'm going to take them out and leave them out for a very long time. And then my sign before I return, the big sign 
will be. I will bring them from the north, south, east, and west and bring them back and establish them again. And you guys can know that's a big sign that you're in the last days of the last days. And boy, I just, I still pinch myself. I pinch myself and I think Israel is a nation. For 2,000 years, there was no Israeli passports. For 2,000 years, there was no country named Israel. For 2,000 years, Hebrew was not spoken as a language to communicate, only in the synagogues. And it was only the reading of the Bible in Hebrew. And to think that Israel is a nation again. Wow, it's a powerful thing. And here, Nehemiah is saying, this place is dysfunctional. It's not possible. There's God's temple, sort of a pitiful looking thing. But God's going to use me to bring this place back to life and the worship of God back to life. And here I am. And he first is very honest with them. This place is a place of distress. This place is a place of waste. This place is a place that its gates are burnt down. He was honest. This the opposite of the politics of today. Republican or Democrat. You always get a bunch of half-truths and, and a bunch of... Uh, I don't know, political rhetoric that is just sort of white noise to me. You know, it's just, you can't trust anything that comes out of a politician's mouth, no matter who that politician is. There's just always a degree. They're not going to tell you the real truth of the situation because you're a child and they don't want to worry you. Well, he didn't play that game here. He said, it's bad, and it's bad in a big way. But then he says, not only is it our problem, but then he turns around and says, let us build the wall of Jerusalem. We are going to do this. Why? Because God's pleasure is with us. God's strength and blessing will be there for us. And we, through God, can make this happen. And in verse 18, I told them of the hand of my God, which had been good upon me, and also the king's words that he had spoken to me. So they said, let us rise and build. And they set their hands to do this work. Remember earlier in chapter 2, verse 8, he, he, it finally dawned on him after the king gave him all these permissions and everything he asked for, the king gave it to him. He, 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 he said, the king has granted them to me according to the good hand of God upon me. He, he just had to go out and just go, this thing was dead unless this King Artaxerxes gave us the green light. And not only did he give us one green light, he gave us green lights to, from A to Z. There's absolutely nothing that he did not give his blessing upon. And so we have the blessings of the King of Kings And we have the blessing of the earthly king whose authority we are under because God has made it so. I think looking at this, yes, it's horrible, but yet God is great. I think we should rise up and build. What do you say? 
Let us put our hands to do this work. President Eisenhower said this, leadership is the ability to get others to do what needs to be done, when it needs to be done, in the way it needs to be done, because they want to do it. <laughs> I want to say it again. Leadership is the ability to get others to do what needs to be done, when it needs to be done, and in the way it needs to be done. And they're doing it because they want to do it. There's two kinds of motivation. One's an internal one, intrinsic. It comes from your own experiences, your own reading, and as Christians, your own praying and being in God's word. And God stirs your heart to whatever it is. I'm going to go out and, and God's put in my heart to go for a three-mile walk every morning to be in shape and, and to pass out flyers telling people about Jesus. And it's something you're doing that God's put into your heart. But then there's another one, and this is an outward, extrinsic motivation. And this normally comes from a leader. And it normally comes because the whole group has to be a part of it to make it happen. Without the group, not one person, not three people can do it. It takes a whole group for this particular thing to be done. I remember at camp, this happened several times. They had all the youth there and they were teaching us about everybody doing their part in the church. And, and it was leadership raising, training us for the, you know, the generation to come. And, and they brought this big, giant rubber ball out. You ever seen those, you know, the, the size of your bedroom or a car? And they say, okay, we need one person to get this thing up in the air. And it's not that heavy. And the guy comes out and it's just so wobbly, no matter what he does, he can't get the thing and, and balance it in the air. Then they say, let's two people, and they can't do it either. Then he says, three people, and three people can do it. It's real light. They got it in the air. It's still a little bit, you know, anybody bumps it one way, then you're having a problem. But then they say, and in our case, it was about 400 youth, everybody now do it. And of course, when you got 400 people in this giant group and they bring that ball up in the air, of course, it's bouncing around, right? But it's, it's like light as a feather. There's no bird. I mean, it doesn't even feel like it weighs anything. And, and it's just the, the point that when everybody does their share, it's possible and it's light as a feather. It's not a burden. But it can't be done by one person. Do you, do you understand that the majority of the big things God is going to let you be a part of in your lifetime, it can't be done by one person. It actually, you have to join a group. And as a part of the group, such a thing is done. Right? I mean, Nehemiah can't build that wall by himself no matter how much he wanted to. He could have got all his soldiers to start doing it. It would have been a very difficult, long drawn out process to do it. 
But if he gets everybody who has come with Zerubbabel, the other great crowd with Ezra, and now another crowd with Nehemiah, and everybody comes out of their farms and from far and wide, and they all put their shoulder to build the wall, something that was deemed to be impossible for almost 150 years was done in 52 days. It not only was not impossible, it was as light as a feather when everybody or almost everybody put their shoulder to it. Just a note, you always have naysayers. You always have people that won't get involved. It doesn't matter what you do. Interesting, we're going to discover it was the princely tribe, the kingly tribe, the tribe of Judah. These guys never did help. And not only did they not help, they found a way to make money on the people who were working hard. Why? They were building the wall. They found a way to make money off of them and oppress them with that. That's a whole other Bible study for another time. But I will make a note that this motivation needs to be deep and it needs to be spiritual because typically when you're going to do something big for God, it's going to be hard and it's going to have to have a continued motivation, a continuous motivation to get through the hard, difficult times that will come. Jesus said this out and out. Before you become a disciple of his, Count the cost. He said that a number of times. In Luke chapter 9, verse 23 to 24, he said to them all, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself. Take up his cross daily and follow me. Whoever desires to save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. In Luke 9, 57, now it happened as they journeyed on the road that someone said to him, Lord, I will follow you wherever you go. (laughs) And Jesus said to him, knowing the guy was dressed nice and liked a comfortable life, maybe, well, foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. Then he said to another, follow me. And he said, Lord, let me first go bury my father. That's his, let me wait till my dad dies and I get the inheritance. Could be months or years. Jesus said to him, let the dead bury his own dead. You go and preach the kingdom of God. Another also said, Lord, I will follow you, but let me first go and bid farewell to those who are at my house. Let me, let me delay things a little bit. And of course, Jesus rejects that in verse 62. Jesus said to him, no one having put his hand to the plow, looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. So we see these guys didn't say, that's a great idea. Let's send it to a committee. That's a great idea. Let's think about that for a few months. They literally turned around and picked up a stone next to them and started building a wall. It wasn't, Nehemiah wasn't saying, let's do this someday, hypothetically. Wouldn't that be great? He's like, I mean, we're starting now. We're not waiting even a day. We're, you know, it's three o'clock. I'm talking to you. We're going to start building at three o'clock right now. I'll just start doing this. Well, in verse 19, then Sambalat the Hornite, Tobiah the Ammonite official, and Geshem the Arab heard of it. They laughed us and despised us and said, what is this thing that they're doing? Will you rebel against the king? 
So Samballot and Tobiah remember in verse 10, they were deeply disturbed that the man of God came to seek the well-being of the children of Israel. Interesting, these men are Jews. We're going to discover this in chapter 13. Samballot the Hornite actually was connected by marriage to not only Israel, but to the priestly line of Israel. Kinder says this in his commentary, an ancient document from this period refers to Samballot as the governor of Samaria. Tobiah also is actually a Jewish name. Later on, it's one of the most popular of all Jewish names to be given to priests. Tobiah actually means Yahweh is good. (laughs) Strange name for a man who's going to oppose the work of God. But we must remember, Nehemiah didn't forget this. We don't fight against flesh and blood, do we? But there is a demon behind that flesh and blood. The spiritual armies of wickedness in heavenly places. We don't know much about Gisham the Arab. All we know is that he was the chief of Arabs. Uh, nothing more than that. What's the laughing and despising us? They, they wanted them to feel foolish. Here they are picking up this stone and Tobiah's laughing at them. Can you hand me my water there? And Tobiah's laughing at them. And they're like, you're trying to make me feel foolish. And then the rock they pick up falls to pieces just as they get ready to put it down. And then he really laughs at them. And then what happens? You start getting paranoid. You start tripping and falling. And, and now you've got black ash all over you and your kids. And, and, and you're putting rocks in place. And it's crumbling as you're putting it in place. And, and they're trying to demoralize you inwardly with this humorous edge which really is trying to chop you down at the knees. Satan, Satan's clever, isn't he? I I think Hollywood's really done this well. They've really gotten to the head of Christians, haven't they? If you go to church on Sunday, they'll make you look like the goofiest person or the meanest person. Sometimes me and Cheryl will watch these murder mysteries and there's a Christian involved. And I tell Cheryl, well, there's the murderer. It'll end up being some insane pastor or some insane elder at the church. And sure enough, 99% of the time, the choir director is really a serial killer. I mean, or they're unwilling to consider anything because they're so spiritual. You know, they're, they're, they're heads in the clouds and they can't really function on earth because they have this spiritual mindset that's totally opposed to being able to live a practical life on earth. And it's in our heads. They, you go to say, hey, I'm a Christian. Oh, you're a Christian? What do you do? Go to the Bible study? What do you do? So lift your hands and say, Jesus, Jesus. I, I remember sharing the Lord with a guy back when I was a carpenter. And I, I tempted to share the Lord. He was very much an atheist and had the arguments. And I had gone this and I just said, can I just share A to Z with you here at lunchtime, how to receive the Lord. And, and I told him and he listened and I said, I got it. I don't tell me how, how do you get saved? And he told it right back to me. And he goes, do you feel better now? Can, can you just let this go now that you know, I know. And 
I still reject it. I'm an atheist, you know. But he, he wanted, he didn't, in listening to me, he, he had planned to try to demoralize me at the end of this. This is what Satan does, and we can't play into it. Yes, I go to church. Yes, I lift my hands and I say, Jesus, you are Lord and Savior. I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. It's the power of God. Yes, I, I understand to the Jew, or to the Jew, it's assembly block. To the Greek, it's foolishness. I, that's what the Bible said. The Bible said you would see it as foolish. But to the Jew who used to think it's a stumbling stop or to the Gentile who used to think it's foolishness, you believe in it, then you'll know it's the wisdom and the power of God. So yeah, we need to not let this mess with us. But often Satan uses people in our lives, sometimes are the people the most close to us, to demoralize us, and they're unwittingly in this. They don't realize that they're being duped by the devil to, to cut your knees out from underneath you. Maybe it's by just saying, I'm just not interested in God like I used to be, or no, I, I don't want to, to go to church every week, or whatever it is. Peter was used in this way. You guys remember that thing where Christ said, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. Oh, flesh and blood didn't reveal this to you, Peter, my father in heaven. And then Jesus starts talking seriously to them, saying, hey, I'm going to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to be taken by chief priests and scribes, and I'm going to be killed, and on the third day I'm going to raise. And Peter took Jesus aside and rebuked him, said, no, Lord, this isn't going to happen. And what did Jesus say in Matthew 16, 23? He turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are an offense to me. Why? Because you're mindful of the things of God. You're not mindful of the things of God but you are mindful of the things of men. You're, you're cutting me out from underneath, right in front of everybody, trying to demoralize me, saying that what I am saying is foolish about being taken by the chief priests and the scribes and put to death and raising again. And, and this is going to happen. And you're satanic by saying the opposite of what I just said. And so the enemy said two things. What is this thing that you are doing? In other words, you're foolish for even thinking this can happen, can be completed, can be done. But they're the ones that are completely ignorant. They're the ones that didn't understand the king had given them permission, that the king had actually partnered in this work. And the spiritual enemies simply don't know what they're talking about. Often that's the case. When you, oh, the Bible's full of errors. Oh, really? Can you tell me one? Well, no. Have you read the Bible? Oh, yeah, I've read the Bible. Really? Let me ask you a couple of questions, you know. How, how many animals did Moses take on the ark? Two. Well, that was Noah, not Moses. So you got that one wrong. You, you, they don't know. They're, they're foolish. They, I'm telling you, they don't know. And, and so when you really ask them and, and you give them information, I, I love watching on YouTube uh, Ray Comfort sharing the Lord with people. If you don't have that, look at that. It'll encourage you. He turns atheists around in about two and a half minutes. But also people that are just, uh, I don't care. Um, a lot of backslidden Christians, all kinds of people. But he 
really gets to the heart of the matter. Well, second, they said, well, you rebel against the king. (laughs) Interesting, again, they're ignorant. They didn't know the king gave them permission. And uh, it is true, this is the same king that stopped Ezra (laughs) years earlier, uh, or stopped Zerubbabel back in that time. But nevertheless, this is now... um, the king that gave, did stop it is now giving permission through Nehemiah. But really the question to them is why, do you, why are you rebelling against the king of kings and the Lord of lords? Well, finishing up here in verse 20. So I answered them and said to them, the God of heaven himself will prosper us. Therefore his servants will rise and build, but you have no heritage or no right or memorial in Jerusalem. Nehemiah answered them, but he didn't try to give a long, drawn-out reason. He didn't show them the papers of permission or have them talk to some of the soldiers that weren't Jews that came from the king to tell them what they know. He didn't, he didn't try to give them details because he knew that these guys could care less about the facts. They just want to, be, they just want to mock them They want them weak. They want them stopped. They really don't care about the truth. And Nehemiah here knows, hey, we're getting ready to put our hands to the work. And here, right away, Satan is trying to slow us down or hinder us, get us off track, or to stop us. So they're starting to build the wall. And all of a sudden, Nehemiah, well, hey, we're not building for a while. We just started. Why, Why? Well, I'm just watching Nehemiah and trying to figure out what he's doing. Are we supposed to keep going here, Nehemiah? Or what are we supposed to do? Nehemiah knows, hey, I'm not going to let Satan slow me down. I'm not going to waste my time with these guys. But he does get bold and he just tells them in a couple of seconds. Number one, the God of heaven himself will prosper us. Here's something you don't know. God is going to prosper us. You're getting ready to see a miracle. You're getting ready to see the mighty hand of God. This is the place that he put his name. This is where the temple is to be. This temple's not here to set empty. It's a place of worship. Go ahead. Do your worst. Try to stop us. You will see the hand of God prosperous no matter what you guys do. And then he second, he says, therefore we his servants will arise and build. You know who you're looking at here? You're looking at people that haven't been obeying God. You're looking at a group of people that haven't been stepping out in faith. You're looking at a group of people that that don't even know how to obey God or submit to God. When we get to chapter 8, you're going to see they have no knowledge of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But then he, he says to them, but we are all equally submitted to God's will at this moment. Because God had already done that deep work of grace. Thirdly, he says, you you guys have no heritage or right or memorial in Jerusalem. Even though you're Jews, even though you're legal citizens of Jerusalem, even though you own property here in the city, we'll find that out later. You guys aren't of the same spirit with us. You're not of the same faith with us. You definitely don't have a vision for a strong Israel for a secure Israel, for a prosperous Israel, for an Israel that's coming to worship God in peace, you don't have that in your heart whatsoever. So therefore, you are the enemy 
of God. I'll tell you what, it's the same thing in our life. We have those spiritual enemies. We need to just rebuke Satan. You have no heritage or right or memorial. Well, Brian, you're a sinner. You're right, but Jesus Christ died on the cross and paid for my sins, but you're still sinning. But his blood continually cleanses me from all sin. And I am walking in righteousness and God is changing me and I am growing. He's a, I'm not a finished product. And one day he's gonna take me into a brand new body and I'll be perfect in heaven with him. So I rebuke you, Satan. And besides, I belong to Jesus. I'm his child, I'm his bride. I don't belong to you. I don't belong to this earth. I'm a pilgrim, a stranger here. But far as in my life, Satan, get out. You have no part nor portion. I'm Christ, and he is mine. I am in him, and he is in me. David Guzik says this, in facing our enemies, we must always keep focus on who we are and what we should do. Failure to see these will always lead to defeat. These are exactly the things our spiritual enemies want to forget, or sometimes you just have to proclaim it. Note, the opposition will not stop. <laughs> they are going to be there annoying and annoying to the very end of the completion of this thing. Well, in conclusion, what do we learn? Four principles we learn in leadership as we see them moving forward in the building. Number one, he identifies with the people and the situation. Number two, he tells them reality of the situation. He gives them an honest appraisal and doesn't lie or manipulate. He, number three, he gives them the charge. God, this is what God is telling us to do. Number four, he declares to them, God is with us. He's the one who will prosper us. Leadership principles, number one, four of them. Number one, he appraises the situation to know what he's talking about and also to make an, a good, solid action plan. Number two, he surveys the situation before he starts, checks out the situation, knows the obstacles, understands what the needs will be done. Then he makes a plan and gets them ready to know, gets himself ready to know what to tell them to do. Number three, he motivates the people before delegating. God is with us. God wants us to, this to be done. Number four, he expects opposition. <laughs> He's not surprised. It didn't come out of nowhere. Application for us to understand what is involved as we appraise our situation. What is the actual situation of our walls? Do you really understand where you're at and what really needs to be done for those walls to be constructed? Number two, have a godly motivation. What does God's word say? And then I'm now walking by faith in that word of God. And number three, encourage others, help others to lead in the areas they should lead in building walls. Lord, thank you for your word tonight. And ah, line upon line, precept upon precept, there's a lot to unravel here. So rich, so thick, so meaningful, so amazing. Cause us to be the men and women of God after your own heart who do all your will as we learn in this book. In Jesus' precious name.